Let's pray together. Ask God to speak to us through his word. Father, we're so grateful for Christ, for the grace that is ours through him. And even though we're going to be in the Old Testament today, we would see Christ. Reveal him to us. Change us. Transform us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you are going to draw a blank when I mention one of the great vocal bands of all time, the Oak Ridge Boys. Anybody? Okay. Those of us my age, we, we know the Oak Ridge Boys, and who could forget that existential experience of having them sing their number one greatest hit, Elvira? Let's say the words together. Giddy up. Um papa. Um papa. Mau mau. Hi ho silver. Farewell. Before the Oak Ridge Boys achieved country music greatness, they actually were a famous gospel group. And this week, while I was doing this sermon, there was this song from that era that one refrain kept coming to my mind. The song is entitled, There's a Light at the End of the Darkness. And it was this refrain. Sometimes we have to be knocked down to make us look upward. I was looking up from the bottom when it finally shined on me. Sometimes you have to be knocked down to make you look up. That's where we are in the Old Testament story. We're in the darkest days of the nation of Israel. We have now for for 30-some weeks tracked through the whole Old Testament narrative. And as we talked about last week, we need to be at this place in the story, just like any great story. And this is the greatest story ever, the model for all other stories that we love. And like in all those stories, there is the moment when things seem hopelessly lost. And in this story, there's a very happy ending. We have to experience the darkness. We have to go through it, and, and we're going to do that today. The, the children of Israel are in exile. They are looking up from the bottom. You know I love to do sermons that have that big reveal at the end. One final lifting of the curtain, and we all go, oh, wow, that's, that's a powerful truth. I like that big reveal. I want to give you a big reveal at the front end today. Listen to me. One-third of the Old Testament scriptures comes out of these 70 years. Just about one-third of them. We have looked at millennium of human history in these weeks together. Out of these 70 years, a third of the Old Testament scriptures. Another third of the Old Testament scriptures comes out of the period of Israel in the wilderness. Now, just think about that. This is God's word we're talking about. And what that tells us is that God speaks most to us when we're on our backs. He speaks most to us when we have experienced utter devastation, even at our own hands. That's when God can speak the most. And when God seems to have abandoned us altogether is when he's closest and ready to just pour spiritual knowledge into us if we just start looking up. We need these seasons in our lives. All of us do, just as Israel did. 
Several weeks ago, we looked at Jacob wrestling with God. For those of you that weren't here for that, you can find it on the website or on the iTunes podcast. You remember Jacob was maimed for life, and we learned a few important things that helped as we come to this passage. We're about to read a book that most of us would choose not to read just by title alone. The book is called Lamentations. It'd be great if there's a book in the Bible called Encouragements. But there isn't. But there is a book called Lamentations. <laughs> well, what's it about? Well, we lament. <laughs> We're able to come to it with hope because of lessons we've learned in this story along the way. And two lessons we learned from Jacob wrestling with God were that sometimes when it appears that God is fighting with you, he's actually fighting for you. And in the process of fighting for the life he has for us and the person he has chosen for us to become, in the process of fighting for that in us, the second thing is he'll maim you if it helps him save you. He'll do that. And nothing shows us that reality more than the history of Israel, especially at this stage in their life. There is no greater example of the extent to which God is willing to go in fighting for you. There was a third truth that came out of that story of Jacob, and that is that you and I are really our own biggest obstacle to the life that God has called for us to live and the person he wants us to become. You're your own biggest obstacle. It's not your circumstances. It's not what other people have done. It's who you are as a person. And God will come against those areas in your life because he cares enough about you to do battle with those things. And that's why sometimes it feels like he's fighting with you when actually he's fighting for you. We see him fighting for Israel in a way that none of us would choose. But in some sense, all of us need. Now, We're going to be in Lamentations chapter 1 and then Lamentations chapter 3. Before we read the passages, I'd let you experience chapter 3 through a video. It puts a voice to it. So listen to it as it's uh, portrayed here. I'm the man who has experienced affliction from the rod of his wrath. He drove me into captivity. He made me walk in darkness. Not light. He repeatedly attacks me, and he turns his hand against me all day long. He's made my mortal skin hoist away. He has broken my bones. He has broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitter hardship. He has made me reside in deepest darkness, uh, like those who died long ago. He has walled me in so, so I cannot get out. He has weighted me down with heavy prison chains. And also, when I cry out desperately for help, he has shut out my prayer. He has blocked every road I take with a wall of hewn stones. He has made every path impassable. Remember my impoverished and homeless condition, which is a bitter poison. I continually think about this. But this I call to mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loyal kindness never ceases. His compassions never end. They are fresh every morning. 
Your faithfulness is abundant. My portion is the Lord, I have said to myself. So I will put my hope in Him. Words that seem contradictory in our Western secularized version of Christianity. That the very God that says, I have plans for hope and a purpose, who Christ himself said he'd come to have life to the fullest, that very God at times comes against us. How can the God that brings devastation be the God that brings divine healing at the same time? That's part of the mystery. That's the God who we really worship, not the God of our own making. And we see him at work in this book. We're going to back up now and begin reading at chapter 1, verse 1. Let me tell you a bit about the background. Jeremiah, one of the three major prophets, wrote this book. Remember last week, we traced the history of Israel as it split into a northern kingdom, which was dispersed, never to be heard from again in the biblical narrative. And then God's focus on Jerusalem and the two lower tribes, now known as Judah. Jeremiah was a prophet to Judah. It was a horrible life. He was calling out about the judgment that was coming. The actual exile took place over several years. There were actually three stages of the destruction of Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar had just defeated Egypt and established the Babylonian Empire as the empire in that part of the world. His father had died. He was on his way back to become king, and on his way, he stopped through Judah and first took control. That was when Daniel and others that we were actually going to spend two weeks studying Daniel. That's a really good part of the exile story. Daniel and other young men were brought back with him on that first part of the exile. Then there was a second part once Nebuchadnezzar was established as king where he came in and he put his surrogate on the throne. And then when a king turned against him, that's when Jerusalem is destroyed, the walls are torn down, the temple is is, uh, destroyed, and everyone now is pulled out except for a very small, weak remnant. And much of that remnant eventually went down to Egypt. Jeremiah was never brought to Babylon. In fact, he was forcibly taken to Egypt by the remnant that remained. He witnessed all three stages of the destruction that he had seen coming for years before, about which he had warned the nation of Judah. They had scorned him. They had put him in prison. They had mocked him. They had not heard the voice of God. Traditionally, we see him writing this as a funeral poem over his beloved city as he is watching it being destroyed. So this is fresh. This is like the opening of a new chapter in a great saga. It's post-apocalyptic. The scene opens. The smoke is still in the air. And what we would see visibly in a movie, Jeremiah describes for us. Now we read. How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she, who once was great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Bitterly she weeps at night. Tears are upon her cheeks. Among all her lovers there are none to comfort her. 
All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. When Jeremiah refers to all of the lovers of Jerusalem, he's speaking about all the idols that the people of God went after. You're going to see that imagery throughout here. God refers to Israel as a bride that has been unfaithful and adulterous, not loving him first and foremost. Jeremiah is observing that all those lovers that the people of God went to instead of God are now nowhere to be seen. Moving on. Verse 3. After affliction and harsh labor, Judah has gone into exile. She dwells among the nations. She finds no resting place. All who pursue her have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for no one comes to her. Appointed feasts, all her gateways are desolate. Her priests groan, her maidens grieve, and she is in bitter anguish. This is the opening scene of this new chapter in our study of the Old Testament. Israel has been devastating. They are on their backs. How did they get here? Well, we retraced that last week. I'm not going to go through it again. 400 years to get here from the rule of David who united them. The peak, the zenith under Solomon, the greatness for those first 20 years. 400 years to get to this point. A lot of patience by God. A lot of prophets going in to warn and to call them back. Moments of brief revival, but then the continuing downslide to this devastating place. And now Jeremiah paints it for us. How did they get there? He goes on, verse 5. Her foes have become her masters. Her enemies are at ease. But how did it happen? The Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins. Her children have gone into exile, captive before the foe. Go forward to verse 8. Jerusalem has sinned greatly and so has become unclean. Here's more of that unfaithful wife image. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns away. Her filthiness clings to her skirts. She did not honor her future. Her fall was astounding. There was none to comfort her. Look, O Lord, on my affliction for the enemy has triumphed. How did this happen? This happened by God. The very God who said, you are my chosen people. You are my royal priesthood. You will be a people of my own choosing. That very God has brought this devastation upon them. That's hard. Let's just go forward and look at chapter 3. We already saw it on video, so I won't reread the opening. But now Jeremiah speaks in first person. And I believe in this there is both his personal devastation, but he's speaking as though he were the city itself. Because certainly for Jeremiah and all Jewish people, they were Jerusalem. Jerusalem was them. This is pretty interesting because Jeremiah was perhaps one of the few true voices in those final years after the first exodus where Daniel left and others. And yet this devastates him. He experiences misery. That's an interesting thing for us to ponder as as God's children because our concept of the abundant life is if I do everything right, if if I follow God, if if I speak the truth, people are going to come. We love this imagery of the fields being white to harvest and all we really need are laborers to go into the field and, and God will give us harvest. I believe all that. I always reach out with the love of Christ with great hope that the Holy Spirit's already at work and people are hungry for God. But the Bible never promises that that is always the context into which we're called to follow him. Throughout the history of humanity, God has called people to follow him faithfully at times when they personally suffered 
in spite of their faithfulness to God, as culture, as the church, as the people of God around them fell into sin and fell away from God. This is Jeremiah's reward for faithfulness, to watch this devastation and to feel that God has abandoned him as well. But yet, there's hope. There's hope. He says in verse 21, Yet this I call to mind, therefore I have hope. As devastating as the scene is, as devastating as his own experience of God in this moment is, he has cause to hope. And this is what he says, verse 22, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed For his compassion never fails. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. I wonder how many of us have experienced such devastation, could call that to memory, could remind ourselves in those moments when all of our expectations of how life ought to be, if we're just good people and we follow God and we we have enough faith and we live a righteous life, when all that falls apart around us, I, I wonder how many of us can call to memory the loving kindness of God, the great love of God, and the mercies that are new and his great faithfulness. He does. But let's look at the verse. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. This is a verse that some of you may say, well, I know that verse. I haven't read Lamentations, but I've heard that verse for sure. Because it's, it's a verse of hope. And when we look at it, where we're not looking at it in context, we'd say, when life gets tough, when our enemies are trying to consume us and overwhelm us, we can trust in God's never-failing love to carry us through. But that's not what this verse is about, is it? Who is it or what is threatening to consume them? The very God who Jeremiah now remembers is a God of unceasing and unfailing love. So here is one of the great truths of the gospel. Were it not for the love of God, the infinite love of God that chooses to act for the good of those that he loves, were it not for that, the justice of God would utterly consume us. That's the God we worship. He is not one-dimensional. We need salvation. We need salvation from God's justice. And that is why the cross of Christ, because the only place where the justice of God could be satisfied was when he poured out his wrath against all of our sin, against all of this sin, your and my sin, on his own son. He satisfied, he poured out, he totally extinguished his wrath towards sin in Christ so that in turn he could pour out his love for us. And were it not for that love, we would all be consumed. See, that's the storyline here. The same God who is wielding a hand of judgment In the midst of this, what gives me hope is that he's also a God of unfailing love, God of perfect justice, a God of unfailing love, satisfied all of that in Christ. See? How do we respond? How do we look up from the bottom when God does this to us? Because he does. Israel is no exception. They are the norm. God does come against things in our life. Because he knows sometimes we only start looking up when we've hit rock bottom 
popular phrase we'll often say is we can only go up from here. And unfortunately for most of us, we discover that there's a few steps down still before we hit true rock bottom. (laughs) But God knows the bottom. And the reality is he loves us so much he's willing to take us there if that will get us looking at him again. See? And before I look at the solution, how to respond, how to find our way back, I want to take you to Psalm 137. You'll find this very interesting here. As soon as I read it, you'll know the setting for this. Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. And they said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. This is in captivity. This is the Babylonian culture saying, sing us some of your music. Teach us about your culture. Verse 4, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. And that this is at least this author's response. Remember, O Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is he who repays you for what you have done to us, he who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. That's what cultures did to each other back then. That's what happened to Jerusalem. Pregnant women were opened. Fetuses killed. Children were dashed on the rocks. This is humanity at its worst on both sides. Complete and utter devastation. How does the writer of this psalm respond? Seeking justice. An eye for an eye. A child for a child. But what's missing in this psalmist's perspective? What's completely missing out of this psalmist's story about Babylon? Personal responsibility. Humility. An understanding of the true cause of what they've done. Yeah, they want Babylon to be judged. But there's no mentioning about personal responsibility. I don't judge this psalmist, but I just point out the glaring absence of it. Because Scripture does give a path back from the bottom. Way back in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, turn there with me. At the dedication of the temple... With Israel at their highest point under Solomon, and finally the temple of God was built on the holy mountain, the Lord speaks to Solomon. We're going to pick it up at verse 11. When Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had succeeded in carrying out all he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and in his own palace, the Lord appeared to him at night and said, Listen, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifice. And then right away, at their very height, this is where God goes. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or send a plague among my people. What? 
That's the first place you're going to go. You're rewarding us for building the temple, for being faithful. You're going to make this your dwelling place. And the first thing you're saying is when, not if, but when, when you come against us, when you bring a plague, that's right, when I do that. Verse 14, when I do that, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will hear their land. That was always the remedy. God gave it to them four centuries earlier. And with that, we see not only for Israel, but for you and me the path back. And there's three things that we can see out of this. The first is that God expects us to take responsibility. There's no healing in our life if we can't look at the role we played in the circumstances in which we find ourselves. There's no healing. There's just victim. There's just Psalm 137. Lord, bash their kid's head on the rock. God can't change you. When all you see is the harm others have done and don't see how you've contributed to it, if my people will humble themselves, take responsibility. Second, turn to God wholeheartedly. Seventy years, Jeremiah says to the remnant before the final exile, before Jerusalem is finally destroyed. The first had already gone to Babylon. Everybody's praying about, you know, getting it right, expecting them to come back. And Jeremiah says, no, 70 years. He tells them, buy houses, have families, get into business, settle in. It's going to take that long. And it did. Because it took them that long to, first of all, humble themselves, and second, start looking up. Pray and seek my face. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray and seek my face. Third, leave your idols behind. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins, and I will heal their land, because that's what he always wanted. You see, but the lesson here is that God is not so much concerned about the life you're building for yourselves, your own kingdom, what you think of as your land, your property, your possessions, your life, your family. He's not so much concerned about the life you're building as he is about the person you're becoming. His goal isn't to make life comfortable. His goal is to make you Christ-like. What we see in Lamentations is the reminder that God always acts first and foremost for his own glory. We say to ourselves, how can that possibly be? Isn't that very selfish of God? Isn't that self-centered of God? (laughs) So Paul says, from him, through him, to him are all things. Well, it's self-centered for us to seek our glory because when we do it, we're putting ourselves in the place of God. God does sit at the center of his universe. It would be immoral for God to do anything else except act in such a way that all of creation is from him, through him, and to him. Because he is righteous, he acts in a way to bring himself glory. 
And somehow within that, he also acts, according to Scripture, always for good for those he loves and are called according to his purposes. And what that means is, what is good for us is never contrary to what brings glory to God. And anything in our life that diminishes God's glory is never good. See? So, think about it. God comes against you. God fights and wages war against those idols in your life and those areas that don't give him glory because they're the worst things for you, even though you cling to them, even though you're convinced that's what you need right now. They're not. God comes against them. God's willing to maim you. He'll wrestle with you. And it's all for your good. And in the end, when you finally get so knocked down that you start looking up, get real about yourself, you recognize it's win-win. God gets glory. I get whole. Hosea had it right. Hosea chapter 6. What a powerful verse this is. Say it with me. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind our wounds. The very God, the very God who wounds us is the God at the end who comforts and heals us. Because that's always his, his goal in our lives. His goal is not to make you comfortable. It's to make you Christ-like. His priority is not the life you're building. It's the person you're becoming. And he loves you enough to go after everything in you that comes short of it. And our response needs to be not anger. But the words of Jose, he has torn us to shreds. Now we return to that very God so that he can bind our wounds and heal us and make us the people we could never have been before that season. Look at your life, your kingdom, your world, your concept of God. What opens up in your mind about this God who, who serves over all creation? You know, it's not an optional choice. You don't go, well, I'm not, I'm not crazy about that God. I'm going to see what other options there are out there. <laughs> That's why he's called I am who I am, because <laughs> he is. And we need to recognize that God is not for your convenience. You are for his glory and his purposes. God's God. Maybe you've experienced God coming against you and you've been playing the victim. You've been blaming circumstances, denying all the stuff in you that those experiences are either revealing in you or that contributed to your getting in that circumstance. God's waiting. He is nearby. Maybe you feel like he's abandoned you completely. He's hemmed you in and every step is the wrong step. When you feel like he's against you, he's fighting for you. When you feel like he's a million miles away, he's right as close as your willingness to turn to him and humbly listen. Would you do that? Can you do that right now? Can you let God into the wounds and the hurt and meet you and remake you with his grace? Father, I don't know what hurts are out here. I don't know what experiences. Um, I don't know what naivety is out here for those that are yet to experience the devastation of life. But you know all these things. And 
We thank you for the reminder that you are a good God. You are a gracious God, but you are a holy God. You are a God who exacts perfect justice. But thankfully, you are a God who is infinite in your love and mercy. Thank you that in Christ you make it possible for us not to be consumed, but to be recreated. In Jesus' name, amen.